Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things Substrate, Polkadot, and Web3. The information provided is for informational purposes only and is subject to change without notice. This podcast session does not constitute, either explicitly or implicitly, any provision of services or products by Parity Technologies, also known as Parity. All statements, including forward-looking statements made regarding companies, securities, or digital assets are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Parity or guest speakers and are not endorsements by Parity of any company or recommendations by Parity to buy, sell, or hold any security or digital asset. Parity and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or digital assets or issuers that are discussed. Welcome, 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 everybody. We are back again with another amazing episode of the Relay Chain podcast. I'm super excited for this one. I have Brain Jar with me today from Composable Finance, and we are going to talk about everything composable today. And I normally start off these episodes in a similar fashion, but in this case, everything about Composable is really a lot. I realized during the research for this episode that my notes were like far longer than I, I've prepared for any other episode. So it's going to be tough to, to kind of squeeze everything into this episode, but we're going to do our best. And um, we're going to kick things off like we normally do with a very high level introduction to Composable. And then we're going to uh, we're going to drill down from there. How's that sound to you, Brain Jar? Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. So uh, let's kick it off. Do you want to give us a, a TLDR of what is Composable at a high level and we can pick it apart from there? Yeah, so of course, great to be here. Thanks thanks for having me. So I think in general, like the easiest one-liner for Composable is really just like interoperable infrastructure for modular DeFi. And what does that actually mean? So we talk about this idea of interoperability a lot within Polkadot, but we haven't really seen many like actual use cases of what that interoperability can enable other than sort of asset transfers from chain to chain. You also see the same thing in Cosmos where you have kind of like the same sort of fundamentals. What we're really trying to do is we're looking at every chain as essentially a location where a specific function can be executed. And so starting to look at things like, say, swap, right? The function of swapping one asset to another asset can happen on any multitude of chains across the entire crypto ecosystem. And so really for Composable, what we're trying to do is first build out all the interoperability infrastructure so that all ecosystems can be connected to Polkadot. And then secondly, thereafter have this cross-chain virtual machine that allows people to write logic to aggregate these functionalities across multiple chains with the end state being here is a cross-chain smart contract that lets me basically swap any two assets, completely abstracting away all complexity, and I just get what I want as a user. Okay. Uh, and I think in that already is is so many things that we can unpack. I want to take it kind of one layer at a time so that uh, folks can kind of follow along here. Um, but before we start confusing folks with different names, I just want to uh, clarify. So Composable Finance is going to be your main parachain deployed on Polkadot. But then you also, following the, the common pattern, um, you have a, a canary network called Picasso. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Okay, so so from here on forth, uh, if you hear us uh, interchanging composable with Picasso or vice versa, uh, just know that we're we're talking about the same thing. 
Okay, so let's maybe start with the problem that you see in the space that Composable is solving. There's kind of two sides. There's like a developer and there's the user. So from the user perspective, when I want to do something in crypto, I have to first decide which chain to do it on, then after that, which protocol to do it on. And sometimes even going as deep as like, which liquidity pool do I need to interact with as well? And as a user, that can be super like daunting and difficult. So essentially what we're trying to say is, yeah, no, just tell, tell us what you want and we can just take care of the rest on the back end, essentially. Um, and so this is obviously like the end state of crypto in a way, like fully abstracting complexity for users so that they can just achieve and do whatever functionalities they want without worrying about is the underlying chain for execution avalanche or moonbeam or you know the composable pair chain or cosmos chain like these things shouldn't matter to the user and from the developer perspective you know if you're building a new application again you need to choose like should i build it as a palette should i build it on cosmos should i ship it as an evm like smart contract and that's super limiting and also like the next generation of applications really is not going to be like dexes or lending protocols or options protocols it's going to be things that live on top of all of these protocols that can basically have each protocol talk to each other so like really ushering in a new novel kind of like amalgamation of underlying protocols for sort of like secondary and tertiary level DeFi applications that really is the future. There isn't too many novel ideas in DeFi these days. And I think developers are a bit jaded. And so this type of framework really introduces and kind of solves the whole like, what next question. So you've built a parachain that solves this problem. And we're going to we're going to figure out how you actually solve that problem. But uh, I want to start with what the actual parachain is is built with. Uh, and, you know, I presume it's it's built with substrate frame because I know you got um, several pallets that are also used in, in other parachains, uh, things like the vesting and multi-sig and, and governance, uh, these sorts of things. And I'm curious, were you able to just use those pallets right out of the box or did you make any kind of customizations to those frame pallets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did make some changes here and there. For instance, the assets frame or like the assets pallet essentially is like kind of outdated, I, I would say. So we sort of like took the more like multi-asset approach also because for us, we're going to have to deal with like bridged assets, right? Like assets flowing from like different ecosystems coming onto our chain. So we needed something like much more robust. So, so we've made tweaks like this across the board, but in general, these are really great frameworks to start with. That's awesome. And then on top of all of that, you guys are, are building a whole slew of pallets yourselves. And that's where all of the uh, amazing functionality for your chain um, comes from. And so I'll just list off some of some of the pallets that I'm aware of. And then we're going to talk about each of these and hopefully we'll be able to cover most of them, if not all of them. Uh, but we have Mosaic, you have Mural, you have Angular Finance, you have Whirlpool Cash, you have Cubic, and and of course the big XCVM. And I think that that still didn't even list all of them. Um, but those are some that I think we'll, we'll touch on at least uh, in this episode. 
who's building all of this? You have all of these different palettes, you have your your main runtime and you have all of this um, customized code. How how are you able to achieve all of this? Basically, the, it's the way our team is structured. So we have like Composable Labs, which focuses on sort of more DeFi oriented palettes, things like um, Angular, things like Whirlpool. These are things that essentially we have like palette developers there living within Composable Labs whose entire role is just, you know, spin up these palettes um, with, of course, our oversight. And then also, you know, within the team itself of Composable Core, we have like an SRE sort of maintenance team for the actual chain itself and like runtime upgrades, et cetera. Then we have a bridging team focused on building all these bridges that we talk about. And then, of course, we have a pallets team as well. And so all in all, we're, we're like 50 plus people, like 60 something, if you include labs as well. And it's just pretty much all like engineers. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big number, I think, considering the space that we're in and considering uh, that Rust developers are, are pretty rare and hard to find. So to, to hear that you got a team that big says quite a lot, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've had to really get creative, right? Like we went into like the Rust subreddit on Reddit and stuff and like literally poached people who we saw replying to questions. We take a very scrappy approach to recruiting mm -hmm. um, because otherwise you find like super overpriced people who just quote you like millions of dollars, right? For like, yeah, I'm a developer who did XYZ thing with Rust like several years ago, but I'm charging like millions of dollars, right? Yeah. So we're, we definitely take the approach of like, let's bring in junior people and train them up to make them senior. Of course, then like, you know, we have a senior team as well, and we're always trying to add to that. Okay, so now let, let's start digging into the actual palettes that you're building. And I was really like racking my brain to how, how to structure the episode. And I think what I landed on is we're going to start with um, the core kind of functionality of Picasso and, and Composable, what they offer natively, and then the products that you're also building that are reaching out of your pair chain and touching other ecosystems and kind of expand, expand by drilling down, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that sounds good. Cool. So, so let's start with something that many folks are probably already fairly familiar with, with a DEX. Uh, so the main DEX that you are building is called Pablo, and it's going to be deployed on, on Picasso where all the experimentation happens before it moves to Composable. Uh, let's talk about this DEX. As I understand it, it kind of combines all of the knowledge and the different styles of DEXs that we've seen um, develop over DeFi summer, if you will. Yeah. So in general, like the only curve that we weren't able to um, incorporate yet into um, our decks is like Uni V3 style decks, which we're actually building. We're, we're working on that at the moment. But otherwise, this deck literally includes like the balancer type model where like you have weights and stuff. But we also have like stable swap curve. We also have, of course, the traditional XY equals K curve. So we basically are, were able to get pretty much all types of AMMs covered uh, through one DEX. And when a user sets up a pool, they can decide to choose which curve to actually deploy with, which is also super like exciting and beneficial as well. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty awesome to have all of those different options available. And I, I did have a note here to ask you specifically about UniV3, so I'm glad you already brought it up. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the fact that they they copyrighted it? They, they protected uh, this new technology that they built. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on on that? And then where are you kind of in the process? Because you just mentioned that you're you're working on implementing that. So where in the process are you and how have you navigated those waters? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, basically, uh, super bearish on like adding these random licenses for sure. Like, I think you got to be pretty naive to believe that like someone's just not going to fork it. And unless they have a huge legal team, which I'm pretty sure they do actually, like there's no way they can defend against people forking. So I don't think there's even a point of doing that. However, like for us, I think UniV3, UniV3 is probably like, a lot of people complain about it. People say, oh yeah, passive liquidity providing is actually you make more money than active liquidity providing, et cetera. And like passive liquidity providers, if they don't know how to be active liquidity providers, then they just like essentially make less money. But I do think the design is super interesting because it enables interesting applications. If you see this protocol called Panoptic, Panoptic basically is an options protocol that just uses, that tokenizes UniV3 liquidity positions into options like calls, puts, et cetera. So that's like some crazy stuff that like you can do with like UniV3. And so that's why we're building that. Um, not just for this like more efficient decks, but also for like the enable, enabling of these types of applications that can be built with UniV3. Very interesting. I hadn't heard of that uh, panoptic uh, project. I have to take a look at them. So you you're offering all of the the normal things that folks have become used to, and you're also offering some of the the newer kind of ideas um, with liquidity bootstrapping protocol and um, the the new hot term of um, protocol owned liquidity. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what kind of key learnings came out of the whole push for DeFi 2.0 that that recently happened? Yeah, I mean, I would say DeFi 2.0 was a short-lived attempt to like really get protocols like generating revenue, basically. So the, their hearts were in the right concepts, but how it was actually implemented really resulted in like an unsustainable model where like there was like revenue generation, but that did not like essentially you, you bond for ohm right and like for ohm the ohm token like we're talking about olympus here that only works for so long right mm -hmm. so they were able to build a, a beautiful treasury and now that treasury throws off revenue and like definitely it's a better system than liquidity mining for sure but like there needs to be a sustainable source of revenue for bonds to actually make sense and that's exactly what we did we said okay look lp you get back this pablo token and then you actually get a significant revenue from the actual fees generated by the DEX. This results in the user making money off of basically um, profit sharing from the DEX. And then it results in us being able to build out a robust treasury. And I think this concept like of protocol owned liquidity is kind of dead in ETH land, but I do think that our take on it, our spin on it should hopefully like usher in a new concept of like, how do you actually bootstrap an ecosystem? 
Yeah, I think it, it's a, it's an interesting experiment that that we're kind of all watching uh, play out. I mean, I guess it's it's not really indicative of the space itself because everything is has dropped so much. But we've also seen a pretty outsized drop in in those uh, protocols. So, what what kind of future do you see coming from there? Do you do you think it will have a revitalization, or or do you think um, something new is going to come out to kind of replace? Will, will there be a DeFi three kind of thing? My thesis is I think DeFi 3.0 is going to be in ecosystems like Cosmos, like Polkadot, that are prioritizing interoperability. Let's really talk about like DeFi, right? You have the primaries, which are like things like oracles, like the actual foundational bedrock with which this decentralized system actually operates. Then you have like secondaries for things like lending protocols, DEXs, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have tertiaries, which are like options and like some more sort of like complex financial products. And then the the highest level is like where you get to like asset management, essentially just one click invest. And so whoever's able to basically utilize the primaries, the secondaries, the tertiaries, and be able to connect all these things across multiple ecosystems will unlock massive new yield opportunities simply from arbitrage opportunities simply from this new level of composability, like able to basically deposit collateral on one chain, take out a loan on another chain. And, you know, there's just like so many different things that like you could really just create new yield out of. So I believe all these bedrock DeFi protocols will remain in play and will remain in existence, but it's on us to basically connect, you know, users that are doing things on one protocol to you know, another protocol as well, because of course, like all, I see this all as just like how the stock exchange developed as well. Like at some point you had multiple different um, markets and basically from there, like you, you then had this reconciliation layer called DTCC that came in. And as a result, there was so much like finally the markets could talk to each other basically. And that's what ended up resulting in HFT and things like dark pools. And then eventually you got this situation where like Robinhood could actually tap into this type of infrastructure. Without this amalgamation and without the markets being able to talk to each other, we would have never had Robinhood. So I do think that the future and DeFi 3.0 is ushered in by primitives where you can essentially deposit money and have it flow from market to market to market within the crypto ecosystem. And, and that's essentially what Composable is, is set to do. So um, potentially Composable is is a part of uh, DeFi 3.0, the next the next kind of wave. But it all starts with uh, with these primitives, like you've been saying. And so Pablo being being a very important primitive, let's talk about some of the other primitives. Um, next up, let's talk about Cubic. Can you give us a, an ELI-5? Uh, what is a vault and how does it compare to multi-sigs? Yes, yes, perfect. So basically, um, a vault is like a permissionless system where basically you deposit in money and the only person who can withdraw this money is you. So it's like a fully, like nobody controls this contract. This is at least an EVM land, right? No one controls this contract and it essentially serves as like a bank without the banker. Like you deposit your cash in there and you're the only person who can withdraw it. But it also allows for interesting 
money management things, right? Because like similar to how you deposit your money into a bank and it gets moved around and stuff. In this case, like you throw money into like a USDC vault on urine finance, like they're going to go hunt for yield with your USDC, but it's done completely permissionless and it's controlled by like uh, this infrastructure of smart contracts. So for us, we said, okay, this doesn't exist in Polkadot right now. Like the concept of a vault just simply is not there. So how is anyone going to do like money management? So that's what we built. We built Cubic specifically to enable people to build urine finance like projects. Maybe maybe an example would help. Say, so uh, I as a person could come along and create a vault. And what parameters am I able to put on this vault? Yeah, for sure. So basically, say you wanted to build a urine finance on Picasso. That basically just you throw money into it and users can then just start earning yield by having that deployed into, say, like Pablo or Angular or like any of these yielding sources. The way it would work is as a developer, I would basically spin up logic, whether you do it as a pallet or whether you do it as an XDVM contract. We're not going to get into that. But basically, you spin up logic and you essentially like initiate the instantiation of like a cubic vault that allows anyone to deposit assets into that vault from the chain. And and from there, the cubic vault sort of then can chat to other pallets in the ecosystem, such as Pablo, and have money basically flow from the cubic vault into Pablo and back whenever the user wants to withdraw. Okay, so when I set up the vault, I'm I'm telling the vault what it's able to do. Like you're able to move funds between these yield-bearing um, vehicles kind of thing? Exactly, yeah. Would it be a fair example to, to compare it to like being a fund manager? Effectively, but like you're not actually doing anything, right? Like you, you essentially set up the parameters and you just let it run on autopilot basically. Okay. It, that's not exactly true because like there's these things called keepers, which like technically is some sort of off-chain component to like, you know, if the APY on the pool goes super low, like instructs Cubic to essentially move the funds to another pool, for instance, if the APY goes below a specific threshold. But we're not going to get into that. But, but that's basically the idea. Okay, so you can, uh, through the magic of smart contracts, program a vault to do various different things according to the rules so that anybody that's participating in them will be able to see those rules before making a decision to enter. That's right. Amazing. I'm sure we could continue talking about Cubic, but we got to <laughs> move on to the next uh, the next module of, of many. Let's touch on Apollo. I think uh, now would be a good time to talk about um, oracles because this is how a lot of DEXs need to get information or, or just any blockchain really need to get information into them from the outside. So let's talk about um, your development of Apollo. I think basically when we set out to, to build something like Angular, we quickly realized, okay, we don't have a single oracle. So we decided, oh, all right, how do we design, design an oracle so that it's resistant to basically price manipulations? So we said, okay, we're going to have people put down a stake. And if they mess around with the price that they're getting from whatever server, uh, we'll slash them. So we have like an extra layer of security of just like not just broadcasting prices like like Chainlink kind of does but we actually have like a network around this like you have to actually stake the pika token 
to broadcast the price within our ecosystem. So that's, that's super important. That's like a very important point. The second thing is the prices are printed at the beginning of every block on Picasso, which means that you cannot front run an Oracle because literally it's right at the beginning of the block. I don't think people will realize the effects of it now until there is actual like collator extractable value, CEV, I guess, within the Polkadot <laughs> ecosystem. But this is like a huge point that I think like, again, is one of the nice reasons why we're working with Substrate. It's like we're able to make this type of change to the actual runtime if we want to. Like if we wanted to, Apollo could be its own project. Same thing with mm -hmm. Pablo, right? <laughs> if we wanted to, all these things could be their own projects with their own tokens and like their own communities. But like we, we literally built Apollo because we needed to. And same thing with the decks. We literally built Pablo because we needed to. I don't think that can be overstated what you just said there that each of these, uh, being pallets in, in and of themselves are, are, you know, contained pieces of logic that could be a standalone thing, but could also be plugged into another pair chains runtime. Um, but are also composable and are able to connect to each other and, and build this, uh, interoperable future that, that we have been talking about. So for, for many years now. Exactly. So you've built Apollo to be MEV resistant. And, and like you said, in, in Polkadot, it would be collator extractable value, CEV. Is this possible? And like, what mechanisms do developers have to, to kind of limit the risk or, or manage the risk of extractable value? I think it actually goes beyond CEV, right? So like in theory, um, Oracle manipulations are pretty easy, right? Like, so let's just, let's just take a hypothetical perspective, right? I, Angular is pulling collateral value from Apollo, right? So what if so what someone could very easily do is say, okay, well, actually this collateral is worth X. And then Apollo basically like, you know, you use the price that was printed from the previous block to value the collateral um, at the current block. And, and what if that collateral goes down 99.9% in that very short period of time, which can happen, right? You're essentially screwed because then the lender gets completely wrecked, right? Because now you've like taken their funds, but the collateral value has plummeted. So printing the prices at the beginning of every block and making sure that anyone that's querying Apollo um, directly from the chain is basically like doing this after Apollo has done its thing at the top of the block provides a ton of protection. Again, like these are, this is a design like, um, choice that really matters for like edge cases, but like these edge cases do happen, right? And that's how you lose like hundreds of millions of dollars in DeFi. Very interesting. Another kind of maybe future looking question is, is this is MEV resistant. What would need to happen to create a truly MEV proof kind of scenario? Or is that even possible? Yeah. I mean, <sighs> There are some things you could do, right? Like, I think Mangada is doing some interesting things there with like sort of like randomly placing sort of like shuffling blocks around basically, like before they're actually printed essentially. So that, that's, there's like some interesting stuff there, but I don't think there's, there's a real answer. Like, I think there will always be some MEV no matter what you're doing. Um, and it gets even crazier when you do cross chain MEV. Right. Because then there's like, 
you can front run people if you know what they're about to want to do on another chain, right? And so this is actually something I've been talking about with a few people. Floated the idea to like Rob Habermeyer as well. Like, could chains theoretically develop this counter bidding system where like the chains themselves are defending using their own protocol, own liquidity to essentially front run the front runners. <laughs> so I don't know like how scalable that is, but like that's definitely something I've been thinking about because like no matter what we do, we're always going to be susceptible to someone who's really smart and knows how to manipulate a decentralized system. Wow. And that just blew my mind. Having the parachain front run the front runners. That's a, a, love, a, a lovely concept to think about. This actually really does exist. There's a paper about this called, um, the term is called counterbidding. Okay. So if anyone's interested in talking about that, feel free to DM me. But yeah, it's a pretty crazy, it's a pretty crazy concept. But I think we could do it, right? Because like, if the chain maintains liquidity, it can do this. So interesting. I wish we had more time to dig into that topic, but I've made a note. I'm going to have to take a look at that afterwards. Um, but now we're starting to to talk about um, information coming into the blockchain. And, and now we're going to talk about getting out to other blockchains. And uh, what better way, what, what better place to start is to talk about something everybody loves, NFTs. The, the new hotness, yeah, J, whether they're JPEGs or uh, or GIFs or any other kind of um, pixels on a screen, everybody loves NFTs. We have this case where we have a bunch of siloed ecosystems where NFTs aren't compatible. And from what I understand, Mural is uh, setting itself up to, to address that problem. So let's talk about how that works. I'm glad you brought this up because it's very like underhyped, I think. The way this works is essentially... Vitalik put out a spec for this um, a while ago. He was like, yeah, so you lock up an NFT on one chain and essentially just print it on the other chain. And that's basically what Mural, like we literally took his spec and just built it. And so now you're able to move NFTs between various EVM chains, which is super exciting. And I, I want to do something like this within Polkadot as well, like have people be able to bridge NFTs using XCM from multiple chains. Like say from from unique to engine, for instance, or from unique to bit country, like this would be really, really cool. But I haven't had the bandwidth to like really revisit mural and like push sort of a new mural v2, basically. So what is the the spec of of mural right now? What is it able to to do? Like what standards does it support and so forth? Yeah, so it's fully ERC seven twenty one at the moment. So it's only like between EVM chains. However, a very easy way to change this is make writing Mural as a palette and having Mural essentially exist on the parachain and have it facilitate NFT transfers from one chain to another. The only difficulty would be we probably would need some off-chain infrastructure to reconcile the different standards. So I don't think Unique and Engine use the same standard. Does Mural just handle the bridging aspect or does it also handle like a transfer? So can I list an NFT on one chain and somebody can buy it on another chain and then it, it does, you know, the transferring, the bridging of the NFT, but also any kind of uh, funds that would be involved? Oh, yeah. I wish we did that, but no, no. Okay. That's a great idea, actually. All right. You got to credit me when you implement that one. <laughs> yeah. <definitely. laughs> 
Okay, cool. That makes sense. And in terms of standards, um, you were saying that you'll need to create some kind of um, interface to to transfer to different standards amongst each other. Are you familiar with and planning on potentially integrating with the Remark standard, which is like the kind of native Kusama NFT standard? Yeah, for sure. We actually released like a, we announced that we've been helping them with their some of their pallets. So I think when you know when they get closer to actually having those things ready, then then we'll definitely like we're huge fans of Remark and, and what they're up to. Mm -hmm. One more question about that is how do you handle royalties when we're dealing with like a cross chain transfer kind of thing? Or I guess I've already answered my own question with a previous question because you don't <laughs> you don't handle the tra the trade. You just handle the, the bridging part of it. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially advocating for us to build a cross chain NFT marketplace, which I'm down, um, but it would have to be down the line for sure. Yeah. OK, that makes sense. Moving swiftly along to another palette, another amazing piece of technology you guys have built. Uh, and this is a little bit of a bigger one, Mosaic. Yeah, so Mosaic basically is the bridge that we built between, so we call it like this transfer availability layer. And basically what it does is like it utilizes other bridges to basically rebalance liquidity in the system to make sure that you essentially send USDC into their um, and you say, I want to bridge to Ethereum or Arbitrum or any L2, EVM compatible L2, uh, you're able to then receive back native USDC. So it works like, to be honest, we put out Mosaic before Stargate, um, layer zero is like bridge, but like, yeah, we're, we are, I think it's, it's relatively fair to say like they seem to have architected it very similarly to what we essentially did. And so the next phase of Mosaic, Mosaic phase two, is coming out soon. And that will include substrate functionality as well. So being able to, to basically bridge your assets over from any anywhere, basically, that's EVM compatible and bridge it onto Picasso. So some of the um, layer twos that you already support are Arbitrum, Polygon, Avalanche, Moon River, Phantom, Cosmos, and ZK Sync. Have I missed any, or are there more since this? That since I got this information? No, no, no. That's good. Yeah, that's right. We're gonna also add Optimism, um, and I think a few others. Like I don't have the list off the top of my head, but it's a long one. Yeah, no worries. Um, so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but does this does this address the the issue where we have pain like that that got burned and minted or locked up and minted on another chain, and and we're in this space where we have like you know a version of Die on Arbitrum, a different version on Moon River, and there's a different version of all these. So does does Mosaic address that? What we address is wrapped assets. There is a canonical USDC that Circle deployed themselves on Arbitrum on all these other chains, right? And so we basically say, look, you're going to get one canonical token for the other canonical token, as opposed to wormhole that basically prints you like wormhole version USDC, because I don't believe in these types of like receipt token assets, basically, because this is just some, this is like straight up like a synthetic mm -hmm. that's what they're printing me right and like i i as a user want to have the actual canonical like real life usdc and not have my entire 
assets essentially like secured by the value of wormhole mm -hmm. right okay so we address that but there really is no way to just have like the same address associated for the same token on multiple right. chains i guess i guess it's theoretically possible but like at this point those those guys just like when they see a new l2 they just ship the token and then it's just like uh as long as the same person deployed it on multiple chains, I guess that's enough like social consensus to say it's the same token. Right. Okay. So you're you're considering so use the example of Circle. They would launch a, a version of USDC on on each of these chains, and then Mosaic would match those those canonical tokens together to to say these are the real versions. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Perfect. All right, all the pieces are starting to come together, making making a little bit more sense of this behemoth of a project. Let's talk about just-in-time liquidity. How does that work? Mm. Yeah, so basically, like, when you send in a transfer, if you want to do a, say, $1 million transfer, like, most bridges would just throw you in there, and then you're basically just, like, waiting for hours upon hours upon hours to actually get the transfer met. In our case, we say, actually, no, sir, you could run a bot, you could provide that million dollars, you can make a fee. And then you can withdraw that million dollars on whatever chain you want, basically. So we're essentially like allowing the bots to run wild to meet transfer requests, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because you no longer have to wait for hours to get your transfer actually met. But then there's also like the, the downside that we're like encouraging bot activity. But I don't think it's a bad thing, right? Like there's no harm being done at all. Like they're they're not only making money themselves, but they're also meeting the transfer request, and they're also passing on a portion of their fee that they made onto the passive liquidity providers as well. Okay, so me as an individual, I want to get my my tokens from, uh, let's say, Arbitrum to Polygon. And uh, so I can deposit my my funds into Mosaic. In doing so, I'm launching a bot. Is that right? So there's two sort of things you're, you're doing, basically. So Mosaic has like two sets of classes of, of liquidity providers, active and passive. The passive guys basically just provide liquidity on any chain and just make money from the fees accrued from bridging, right? And then as a bot, I'm basically front running these passive liquidity providers and saying, hey guys, I'm going to come in and provide liquidity for this specific transfer. Um, and then they make like 70% of that fee and then they pass on a portion back to these passive liquidity providers. The bots are really intended to become kind of like they're going to start out as like last line of defense to meet transfers. But eventually we want them to actually be the front lines because then you're in a world where you're not dependent on having to maintain passive liquidity. Right. If you have a robust enough bot network, then Composable doesn't need to maintain any TVL at all. Right. The bots just handle it completely themselves. Very interesting. And how involved is the process of of spinning up a bot like would this be a process for a developer or would an average person be able to access this i mean hopefully or i mean you let me know what you think of the docs when we release them but i i think they're pretty understandable for anyone to potentially run run a bot yeah i mean it, it really just depends like 
I would say it's probably going to start out just mostly developers, people who know how to do MEV and searching and stuff like that. And then over time, I would love for anyone to run a bot. Okay, cool. Something else that I saw that uh, Mosaic can do is it can like manage your LP tokens for you. So if you are providing liquidity on Sushi on one chain, you can then transfer the, those LP tokens to Sushi on another chain. How does that work? Yeah, wow. You really uh, went pretty deep here. Yeah, so basically we figured out the math for how to do LP transfers from chain to chain. Um, it's not one for one which is like a common misconception. Mm -hmm. um, so basically it's like, so if I see, for instance, that the APY is higher on one chain than another for the same liquidity pool, if I bridge my LP tokens from one chain to the next, then essentially I'm transferring my liquidity provisioning position, right? Mm -hmm. So if I bridge my, say, three curve from one chain to another, now I'm getting the fees and the APY of that pool. Right. So it works exactly the same way as Mosaic. It's just it's just another asset type that we just support. That would also require liquidity providers to provide liquidity for liquidity providing tokens. That makes sense. That's, yes, that's, <laughs> that's true. That's the limitation, right? Like I don't, Yeah. Uh, it's hard to get people to do that, but like maybe we can get people to do that. We're not really, I think initially we'll push just like standard assets, you know? Yeah. And then over time, I do want to support LP tokens, definitely. And that is where we're going to end this episode. But don't worry, we have another info-packed episode coming for you right around the corner where I continue my conversation with BrainJar and we unpack some more of the other modules that they're building like Mosaic, XCVM, Centauri, Angular, and Whirlpool Cache. So if you're interested in any of those topics, keep an eye out for our next episode. And until then, take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Relay Chain. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the subjects we talked about today. So please reach out to us on Twitter at Relay Chain or by email podcast at parity.io. The team at Parity has some of the brightest minds working towards building a robust and inclusive ecosystem that puts power back into the hands of its community members. With cross-chain communication as a primary goal, we aim to break down the tribalistic barriers that have formed throughout the blockchain industry. If you want to learn more about what we're building, or if you want to join our team, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io slash newsletter. The content presented on Relay Chain is not financial or investment advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to support any specific project. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the podcast guests and hosts and are not necessarily shared by Parity Technologies or Web3 Foundation, who do not endorse or guarantee the accuracy of the information provided.